You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. CISA announces a new public-private cybersecurity initiative. Prometheus TDS and Profit Spider take their places in the C2C market. The money points to Black Matter being a rebranded dark side. Andrea Little Limbago from Interos on divergent trends of federal data privacy laws and government surveillance. Tanya Dudley from CoFence checks in from the Black Hat show floor. Our guest is Simon Maple from Sneak with a look at cloud-native application security. And where some see naivete... Others see cautious optimism about putting fear in the hearts of ransomware gangs. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 6th, 2021. Late this morning, CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, issued a media advisory announcing the launch of a new Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. The goal of the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative is to integrate unique cyber capabilities across multiple federal agencies, many state and local governments, and countless private sector entities to achieve shared objectives. Specifically, the new initiative is expected to, first, design and implement comprehensive whole-of-nation cyber defense plans to address risks and facilitate coordinated action. Second, share insight to shape joint understanding of challenges and opportunities for cyber defense. Third, implement coordinated defensive cyber operations to prevent and reduce impacts of cyber intrusions. And fourth, support joint exercises to improve cyber defense operations. The initial private sector partners include Amazon Web Services, AT&T, CrowdStrike, FireEye, Mandiant, Google Cloud, Lumen, Microsoft, Palo Alto Networks, and Verizon. Interagency federal partners include the Department of Justice, U.S. Cyber Command, the National Security Agency, the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Sector risk management agencies are expected to join as the initiative expands. Group IB describes a significant entrant into the criminal-to-criminal marketplace, the Prometheus TDS, that's Traffic Direction System, which distributes malicious files and directs victims to malicious sites. Prometheus is widely used by a surprising range of criminals, and one of the prices quoted for a subscription comes in at just $250 a month. Customers aren't just cyber criminals. Conventional fraudsters are in on it too, 
like the all-too-familiar spammers on behalf of sketchy Canadian pharmacies, counting on doing business with Americans too gullible to see emails offering off-brand Viagra for what they are. Scams, Yankee Doodle, scams. Buyer beware. CrowdStrike late yesterday published a description of Prophet Spider, a criminal gang that's been active since 2017 at least. Active against both Windows and Linux systems, the gang has recently been observed exploiting CVE 2020-14882 and CVE 2020-14750 to gain access to unpatched Oracle WebLogic servers and thence to victims' environments. CrowdStrike told us through a representative that Profit Spider is opportunistic in its choice of targets, which have included energy, financial services, manufacturing, retail, and technology companies. The gang has also been selling initial access to a variety of ransomware operators, and it may aspire to be a player in that corner of the criminal-to-criminal market. Chainalysis says that tracing money through the blockchain has enabled it to confirm that Black Matter is indeed a rebranding of Darkseid, and not merely a newly formed group that's learned from its predecessor's best practices. So, this may unravel a whopper someone claiming to represent Black Matter has been telling. With this year's Black Hat Conference in full swing, we've been checking in with attendees for their perspectives on the show. Today's contributor is Tanya Dudley, strategic advisor at CoFence, who shares her approach to getting the most from a conference like Black Hat. Um, When I'm here, I really want to be in sessions where I'm going to, you know, hear what's going on and what what others are observing. So for me, it's really looking at the, um, first of all, starting with the keynotes, right, making sure that I'm there present and and listening to what they have to say. And then also for, you know, as I'm going through the session list, just looking for things that are important to the fishing landscape, what could impact co-fence as a whole. And just really kind of observing what's on the horizon or what we really need to pay attention to as, it, as we design our products to help defend against the threats. How does this year compare to the last time you were there? Is, is, a, is the feeling similar or do things feel a little different this year? Um, probably a little different with so many, uh, you know, starting with solar winds and the supply chain uh, attacks, the increase in ransomware that we've been hearing about in the news lately. So just really a little bit different atmosphere, right, as we pay attention to, you know, the impacts of what these are going to have. And then along with the executive order and what impacts that's going to, you know, drive for policy and and changes in the landscape. What about beyond the show itself? I mean, how much time do you spend at an event like this networking, you know, attending those events that happen before and after the show? I'm sure I try to um, find individuals that either I don't know or just, you know, kind of participate in some conversations that might be happening around me to, to meet with people and really just understand what it is that they are looking for in their defenses. What are the things that they might be observing in their organization just to really kind of get, get a gauge for what's the, what's the temperature for, you know, how organizations are adapting to the threats that they're currently dealing with. Do people seem to be in good spirits? Is uh, people seeming optimistic and uh, like they're, they're happy to be there? Yeah, it's happy. It's, it's, funny to just watch people recognizing people that they haven't seen, you know, in a few years and being able to just kind of be in their presence. That's Tanya Dudley from CoFence. The record reports that U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Newberger sees Black Matter's policy of not hitting critical infrastructure 
as a hopeful sign that the U.S. message about prohibited targets is getting through. She said, quote, As we looked at that interview, we took it as evidence or perhaps as a sign that the message regarding the disruptive ransomware activity against critical infrastructure is unacceptable, and we will address it. We felt that message was reflected in some of that, end quote. Newberger's remarks have been greeted with some skepticism by NBC's Kevin Collier, for example, who regards them as reposing unwarranted trust in the word of a criminal. Collier tweeted, Who oh boy, Newberger is the de facto voice of the Biden administration's response to ransomware. A rebranded dark side hacker says in a single softball interview that they're avoiding critical infrastructure in their ransomware relaunch, and that's a win? End quote. Any thinking person would indeed agree with Collier that the avowals of a criminal who's already been caught in one lie are worth little. How little? Well, our classical desk says they're worth less than what Catalyst thought of his girlfriend's flattery. Ah, write it on the running water, write it on the air, as that raffish Roman poet had it. And it's easy to feel his frustration. But in fairness, Newberger's comment isn't really that naive— the goons who represented themselves as dark matter numeros say they were acting out of self-interest, concern over government countermeasures. And Newberger did say that the proof would be in the pudding. Fear of the long arm of the FBI or the cyber reach of NSA is a good thing. And even if the goons were insincere, well, hypocrisy is, after all, vice's tribute to virtue. So maybe the message is indeed being received by someone. Newberger added, quote, We're looking to see the changes in addressing disruptive cyber activity over time, end quote, adding, according to the record, that she realizes it's quite possible their interview wasn't, in fact, with an actual Black Matter representative. We've heard that people sometimes misrepresent themselves online. Have you heard that? Our classics desk informs us that once, while hanging out in a chat room devoted to heavyweight boxing, Someone falsely claimed to be former champion Larry Holmes, but a lot of the chatters were really excited to be in proximity to the champ. So, naive but cautiously optimistic. Still, soundbite's gonna bite, which is always an issue when you talk to the media, except, of course, with us. And what was the classics desk doing chatting with the bogus Larry Holmes, you ask? Who knows? With those guys, write it on the running water... Write it on the air. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber.
In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Security firm Sneak recently published their cloud-native application security report, highlighting security concerns from organizations who have adopted cloud-native computing. Simon Maple is field CTO at Sneak, and he joins us with insights from the report. So um, beyond the cloud-native adoption being very, very strong, particularly in containers, uh, a couple of things that um, struck me as very important and interesting is, first of all, the fact that uh, security hygiene misconfigurations and known vulnerabilities were key in terms of the areas in which uh, respondents said that they were most concerned, as well as where they have uh, incidents today. So the survey showed misconfigurations were the biggest area of increased concern. In fact, over half of respondents stated that it's a bigger problem for them since moving from a non-cloud native platform to a cloud native platform. Uh, And I guess that's you know, using whether it's Docker or your cloud environments or your infrastructure as code, there being so much more configurations. Also, there was a really strong correlation between deployment automation and people being successful with cloud native adoption. So seeing automation really driving where people test, uh, what people testing, uh, and also the ability to fix much, much quicker uh, and really fix critical issues faster when you have a good automation in place. One of the things that struck me about the report was um, you all noted that developers are really taking responsibility for security. It's, It's not being handed off to folks down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always an interesting question when we ask, you know, who has responsibility for security? And it's a kind of a, a very loaded question in, 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 you know, whether any one individual or role should own security. I think that, you know, there are different areas of application development or general security that, that different roles will have more of a leading um, role in. So, for example, when we think about pure application, you know, s- securely developing code, so de- secure development, 
there's a lot that developers need to own, right? They need to be responsible for the code they write. They need to be responsible for when they push code into repositories, whether it's Docker files, whether it's Terraform scripts, whether it's uh, their own Java node code, whatever it is, they need to make sure that they've done the, the necessary tests, etc., before they're just pushing uh, code into those repositories. So from that angle, you know, developers should own the, the responsibility for that. And it's very interesting that when we, when we ask that question, we actually did the split by respondent to see how developers and security team answers differed. And yeah, absolutely. When we asked uh, the question of who should own uh, cloud native app security, less than 10% of respondents in security roles believed that developers were responsible for for securing those cloud native environments. And from a developer point of view, over 36% of developers stated that they were responsible. So developers are, are much, much more forthright in saying that they should own uh, security than, uh, than the security team would uh, be at saying developers are. So based on the information that you've gathered here, what are your recommendations? What are the take-homes? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think I think a lot of the take-homes are to to make sure that when you are from a security point of view, to make sure that when you look at your cloud native applications, you're focusing on the right areas. And when we look at where the risk areas are, we need to we need to look at where incidents people are fight people are having incidents. That is largely around the misconfigurations, largely around uh, known vulnerabilities about API uh, configurations as well. So make sure that our efforts are being are being put into where you know actual incidents occur and of course that's going to be different based on org to org but we've seen that big correlation there um around that security hygiene typically these are not the the complex issues this is general security hygiene issues um my second my second area which is which is a big recommendation here is to that automation pipeline Automation is really important and pushing security into that automation is clear as, a, as the value it provides, not just from the visibility point of view and testing regularly, but the impact that then makes on your ability to react to security issues and security incidents. So automation and, and putting security into that automation is key to being able to fix faster uh, and react to security issues much, 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 much quicker. That's Simon Maple from Sneak. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Uh, Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, we've been seeing a lot of uh, federal data privacy laws being passed, but I guess on the other side of that bit of tension, we're also seeing plenty of stories about government surveillance. Can we dig into that some? I mean, what's what direction are we headed here in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, so we're very much at this inflection point. I feel like I've, I've talked about for a, a couple of years, but we, it, it keeps getting pushed farther and farther. And we're actually starting to see... Um, the divide starting to happen. And, you know, so there are, you know, roughly 100 countries that have a data protection law now, a federal data protection law. You know, for those who are in favor of data protection and security, that's great. There are many other countries as well that have passed laws that just have not enacted them yet, so the, you know, the number's even higher. But at the same time, as, you know, some of these same countries that are passing some of these laws also have some competing forces that are also leading toward 
either censorship or surveillance as well. And so even you can think about you know, just Brazil in its recent history has passed a, a pretty large data protection law mirrored on the GDPR. At the same time, in the recent history, they also have censored WhatsApp and done you know, a variety of other uh, temporarily quick uh, censorship and, sur- and surveillance issues linked back. So you know, they kind of, they don't go together, right? They're, they're, it's almost like, how, how can you have a data privacy law if then there's some surveillance and censorship going on? They're just competing forces. And on the one hand, it's hard. I mean, because especially when you think about, you know, for national security, like for legitimate national security reasons, there may be reasons for access to certain kinds of data. The problem is that that argument is being used for almost anything. And certainly for, you know, politically it can be used for political motivations. And mm-hmm. so we do see this push and pull going on where you do have a big push towards data privacy and protection. And that's what a lot more of the people you know, across the globe are demanding that kind of uh, protection. But at the same time, governments... You know, now there are these tools that are out there that enable them to have you know easy access to data. You're trying to circumvent some of that. Like if, even if you just think about some of the um, you know the NSO tools and the, you know, and Pegasus and the spyware that became so accessible to so many authoritarian governments. And so even in those cases, you have some you know countries. You know, Africa has over half of the African countries. Um, I think it's maybe 24, roughly 24ish, um, have data privacy laws. But at the same time, we also see a lot of these you know, sort of spyware tools being used uh, across the continent as well. So it's it's really just competing forces going on. And um, I'd argue it's unclear which one will, will prevail. And, and I'd also say it's going to be a patchwork. You know, it's, it's going, you know, some are doing better than others in, in, you know, in different parts of the globe. What about here in the U.S.? I mean, we, we've seen reports even recently about, uh, you know, uh, watchdogs saying that our FISA courts are just sort of rubber stamping uh, requests from the FBI, you know, th- those sorts of things where perhaps uh, there needs to be some more recognition of the privacy laws uh, or uh, people keeping an eye on them. Who's watching the watchman, I guess? Well, there is, I mean, well that's always the question, right? And that's where, that's where the, the rules of, rule of law and transparency just becomes so, so, so important. Because even like Australia passed their, basically what they call it, the anti-encryption law, I think about two years ago now. And there hasn't been a ton of transparency. There's just, so there isn't, there just isn't widespread knowledge as far as how much is, it is being used or, or whether it was you know, almost more formality for just you know, for the very few cases, like the you know, like the government said. And so, without that transparency, it's hard to know exactly whether there needs to be the watchman watching them. And so, that I'd argue is also where the you know, the freedom of the press becomes so very important. And so, any kind of attacks on the press, you know, directly go into this. But in the United States, you know, without a federal you know data privacy law, because we don't have one yet, and it would be great if at some point. With input from the private sector, uh, we had a, a coherent one. And in the absence of that, we're, we're seeing a patchwork across the U.S. The U.S. I mean, even in Virginia, where I live, just passed a data privacy law and um, you know, fairly comprehensive one. And we're just seeing this popping up across the U.S. And so, I'd argue for both the government, you know, for the federal government, but also for corporations in the United States, dealing with you know fifty plus different data privacy laws. At some, you know, that's sort of the direction that we're going. You know, is not terribly efficient or how, how do you keep track on any of those? Because also you get to get to the point where some of them will probably will contradict each other. Like in the data breach notification laws, some of them contradict each other from state to state. So mm-hmm. it becomes really hard. But I do think, I mean, that it's, it's, that's where your, de- your democratic institutions just become so, so important to ensure that those exceptions are truly exceptions and that there are, you know, that, that there's good accountability going along with it. All right. Well, Andrea Little-Limbongo, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Trey Hester, Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.